Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Ambassador John Feely. Ambassador Feely had a 20-year State Department career. Ambassador Feely served as Ambassador to Panama. He was Deputy Chief of Mission and Charge in Mexico City. And he was the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. He was also Deputy Executive Secretary, where he worked on the staffs of Secretary of State Colin Powell and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. In addition to serving in other Latin American assignments, both in Washington at embassies throughout the region, Ambassador Feely also served in the United States Marine Corps from 1983 to 1990. Ambassador Feely, thanks so much for being with us today on Building the Future with Dan Rundy. It's a real pleasure, Dan. Thank you. So, Ambassador, tell us a little bit more about your career. When and where did you join the Foreign Service, for example? In 1990, in Washington, D.C., where everybody joins the Foreign Service, After college, I had joined the Marine Corps. I spent from 83 to 90 flying helicopters, mostly in the Middle East and in the Mediterranean. I was married at the time with two little kids, and I received a very timely ultimatum from my wife when it came time for me to re-up in the Marine Corps. She said, you can choose the Marine Corps or you can choose your family. And uh, I made the right choice, and we're still married today. I studied international relations at my undergrad. And so I took the test. You know, the Foreign Service is a uh, test evaluation-based hiring process. And my wife also took the test. And the two of us in 1990 embarked on what would be a marvelous career that focused almost exclusively on Latin America. And that was initially by chance. I thought they would send me, you know, I spoke a little French at the time. I'd spent a lot of time working with NATO allies. And I thought for sure I was going to be sent to the European theater. And they sent me to Santo Domingo and I was a vice consul in the Dominican Republic and literally learned Spanish, fell in love with the region and never looked back. That's great. How did you end up in the U.S. Marine Corps? That's a great combination for public service, especially having been in armed services and then go to the State Department. It's great. Ambassador Bill Taylor is someone else who was in the Army and then was in the Foreign Service. I think that served him really well as well. There's a number of us and quite frankly, of my generation. And my years in the State Department were 1990 to 2018. There were actually very few of us. I seemed to hit it at a lull when coming from military service into State Department was something that was seen as a kind of a normal career track. If you go back to Vietnam and if you fast forward to the Iraq-Afghanistan wars, there are actually a number of younger officers now who also have military service. But for my generation... There were really only two or three of us. Keith Mines over at uh, the United States Institute for Peace is one who comes to mind. But really, I can count them on one hand of my generation. But the way that it happened was quite simply, I came from a family of uh, New York City cops and firemen that all had military service. My dad served in Korea. So public service was kind of in our blood. And I saw the Foreign Service as a, more or less a civilian extension of what I did. Obviously, the day in, day out was very different, but 
you know, for somebody who was the grandson of, of four immigrant grandparents and who sort of genuinely believed in the, and still does believe in the American dream, it was something that I always just kind of knew I would do. And in my case, I was enormously fortunate and I had uh, the most rewarding career I can think about. I was really grateful. You really helped me out a couple weeks ago. I'm going to use the parlance of the day. I was triggered by a photograph of a Nicaraguan bishop who was on his knees with his hands behind his back, surrounded by Nicaraguan government thugs with machine guns, placing him under arrest. And it really, I think the term of art has really pissed me off and really made me angry. And so I'm I'm Catholic, and I was quite upset about this. I follow the region with interest. I think the United States has an ADD relationship with Central America and the Caribbean. We only kind of pay attention when there's a crisis or a problem. It's very difficult you know, to track a country like Nicaragua, which rises on the radar screen when there's a problem. So, you know, for folks who actually follow this stuff, well, they say, well, Dan, there's been problems with the Catholic Church since at least 2018. Anyways, you you followed the region for a long time and you followed Nicaragua for a long time. So I wanted to get you on the podcast, particularly to talk about Nicaragua. We did a panel here at CSIS on September the 2nd that you helped make a success. So let's first start with why should we care about Nicaragua? And why does it matter? Sure. The two essential questions that every policymaker has to be able to answer when you're teeing up something for principals, secretaries of state, presidents, national security advisors, who will always have too many issues on their plate to be able to handle it one day. It's almost like uh, I remember when I was flying, the first glass cockpits came out. And one of the things that they realized at uh, Pax River was that the systems on board produced more information than the very best test pilots could absorb. And that's very frequently what happens with the senior most policymakers in the U.S. government. They do not have enough hours in the day to be able to handle all of the issues and crises around the world. And so as a result, there is a constant competition to sort of get on their radar. That brings you to the Western Hemisphere. I'm semi-retired, and I can say this now, but the Western Hemisphere since the 1980s, whether it's been a Republican or Democrat administration, has always suffered from, and I like what you said, I hadn't heard that one before, but an ADD relationship. Another way it's been put is sort of the redheaded stepchild. Every Secretary of State that I ever worked for, Republican or Democrat, every presidential administration, will all make the titular nod towards the strategic importance of the region. But the real ugly and, you know, sort of brutal truth is no nukes, no war, no boom in the middle of the night, same time zone, not much attention. And I hate to say that, but it's my experience over 28 years. We only get attention when the region goes boom or increasingly when there are voices in the Congress that sort of say, this is a problem. And it's one of the reasons why I think you see such stasis in our policy. The last time there was really a bold initiative in Latin America, it was Obama's opening towards Cuba. Now, you can argue both sides of that issue all day long. And there are, frankly, I believe, good arguments on both sides. But that lasted for about 18 months, and then it went away. And we are back to the same policy that we've had 
more or less for about 60 years. And, you know, the question one has to ask themselves is, so how's that working for you? Cuba is still a totalitarian dictatorship that represses the human rights of its people. It is still a, although I think it may formally have been taken off the list, state sponsor of terrorism. It still supports some pretty nefarious folks around the region, and it clearly works to subvert U.S. national security and policy interests, non-security policy interests across the region. So we suffer from this stasis and lack of attention. And when you come down to Nicaragua, the last time Nicaragua really was a national issue was when President Reagan made it such. It was attended with uh, controversy, our support for the Contras and how they were financed, and everybody remembers Oliver North. But since then, Nicaragua, because of no nukes, no war, no boom in the middle of the night, Nicaragua has sadly faded to 10th tier importance in Latin America. And in 2007, 2006, in the election, 2007, he took office, Daniel Ortega came back. And what did he do? He came back at a moment of the pink tide, the first famous pink tide, right? Where we had Hugo Chavez was ascendant, oil prices were through the roof, and Ortega benefited from tremendous Venezuelan largesse. He had, you know, done the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, he made himself a softer, gentler, non-revolutionary Danny. He took a lot of pictures of himself getting receiving communion. I'm Catholic as well. And those of us who knew who he was said, yeah, right. But an awful lot of folks, and, and this is not necessarily a criticism, it's a recognition of reality, you know, folks on the seventh floor of, of the CIA and the State Department and over at the National Security Council, you know, said, okay, so, all right, yeah, he's an old commie. So what? Do we care? Is there a problem? Nicaragua was not contributing at the moment for the first number of years, really, until recently, to migration crises. Nicaragua was included in CAFTA, but frankly, the terms of trade are minuscule doesn't mean anything for the health of the U.S. economy. So there was very little, really, to grab the attention of senior policymakers until 2008. So why has there been this crackdown? I referenced the fact that this has been going on for a while. Why is Daniel Ortega cracking down and closing the civil space, if you will? If you want to run for office and challenge him, there's six or seven presidential candidates who stood forward and, and filed the papers to run for office, and the next day they were arrested. What is going on? Why is he doing this? What's driving this? A number of things. Number one has been the demise of Venezuela. Venezuela was his funder for a number of years. You'll remember back uh, Venezuela set up something called Petro Caribe, where it basically gave away its oil largesse, uh, tremendously preferential terms for like-minded, socialist, anti-American governments. And it provided oil at a significant discount in the years when oil was running $150 a barrel. Depleted Venezuela's oil-producing capability. And that country is a complete disaster under Maduro. But what it did do is it solidified the sort of symbolic and beyond symbolic. It solidified the political relationship between Nicaragua and Venezuela. But over time, that money dwindled, the oil dwindled. And so now Daniel and Rosario, for our listeners, that is the wife of Daniel Ortega, who is, as, as I like to refer to her, the co-dictator. She is a, the appointed vice president for Daniel Ortega. 
And even though he won an election in 2006, he's not permitted free elections since then. And there's no indication that he's going to give it up. So one was the loss of money. Two was the sort of, I would say, the increasing criminalization of the regime. Daniel Ortega presides over a what is really a mafia government. It does not provide basic services of health, education, housing to its people. Uh, what it does is it lives off the corruption of state enterprises and private enterprise, and it hides that money all over the world in offshore accounts, in banking chicanery, the likes of which the International Consortium of International Journalists has investigated. And so increasingly what I see in Nicaragua is uh, what I call the North Koreanization of the regime. It's a family. So think of, you know, the traditional five families in the New York mob. It's a family. They have nothing but their own power and monetary interests in mind. It has to, on occasion, make it, you know, a nod towards being popular and being the president of a country. But frankly, they don't really care because, as you mentioned, and rightly so, they have effectively silenced all of the opposition inside Nicaragua. And they've done that very effectively. And that includes press civil society, opposition parties, and most recently and most notably, the Catholic Church. So we had Archbishop, I think it's pronounced Brolio, who is with the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. He gave some opening remarks at the event that we did earlier this month, on September the 2nd. It was one of the few times that an ecclesiastical leader from the United States has made a statement on what is going on in Nicaragua. Not the only time, but one of the few times. Let's say it could be kind of considered a semi-official statement from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. However, there's been a concern that the Vatican, the Holy See, the formal term, has been a lot more silent than it should be on what is going on in Nicaragua. Why is the Vatican being more quiet than people like me would like to see? I can only speculate. Based on my experience working with papal nuncios, Throughout Latin America, the Vatican is also, aside from the Pope being the spiritual leader of Catholics around the world, the Vatican is a tremendously entrenched bureaucracy. And it has a foreign ministry, just like a country. And it runs it, just like a country. And it has its interests. And its interests are split between the pastoral, which would be attention to, uh, you know, the faithful's spiritual needs, but also the, the very practical and real to include church benefits in country X, Y, or Z, exemption from taxes. Church plays a significant role in peace processes around the world. Uh, they see themselves, and with good reason, as, as having being able to bring the good offices of the Pope. So there's always, you know, I, mean, I don't want to sort of go full Dan Brown on you here, but there's always some element of bureaucratic uh, diplomatic machinating going on in the Vatican and in the Vatican's foreign policy structure. So one speculation is that the Vatican is desperately trying behind the scenes to work with the Ortega regime to get a number of the current 100 and I think we're, they're up to like 189, I think was the last number I saw, political prisoners released. 
And as you mentioned, of those political prisoners are a number of presidential candidates. There are a number of church workers. There are a number of folks who are affiliated through civil society organizations with the Catholic Church. So in the way that a, any nation state would sort of withhold or pull its punch on a public reproach of a regime that it was silently or quietly negotiated with, the Vatican may have done that. That is up for judgment, right? And I will offer mine. As I said, I'm also Catholic. I'm a fan of this pope. But I think that they are being either naive or too cute by hand by thinking that they can actually really negotiate with the Ortega Murillo regime. You know, let's just take a look at the tail of the tape, if you will, from 2018 on. 2018, for our listeners who may not be aware of it, there were uh, popular street protests over a number of things, and the detonating spark is lost in the history. There were specific reasons for it, but they don't even really matter because basically people were just, to use your technical term, pissed off at how they were living under a human rights repression regime that wasn't providing the economic well-being that they needed or felt they deserved, that was squeezing liberties on college students. And so a lot of young people were involved in the April 2018 riots and street demonstrations. The response from the Ortega Murillo regime at the time was straight out of the Cuban slash Stalinist playbook. It was heavy-handed repression. Go into the streets with the police and the paramilitaries, secret police, the the undercover police, and and just repressed the hell out of them. And they threw a lot of people in jail. During that time, there was actually a siege of a church very close to where one of the riots was happening. A Catholic priest saw what was happening. His his church happened to be physically near the university. Students were being literally arrested and beat up en masse. And he said, come on, come to the church. I'll give you refuge. Keep in mind, Nicaragua is a very Catholic country. Uh, It is over 70% Catholic, and it has a very strong devotional following. So the church is a reference point for that society. And priests are held in, traditionally, in pretty high esteem. Such high esteem that Daniel and Rosario, and they came back after having been professed communist atheists throughout much of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they decided it was useful to put on the trappings of the church. And so they got their picture taken in front of every crucifix and receiving communion that they could. Well, this priest invites these students in and literally they're unarmed. They've got no weapons. The Ortega regime shoots into the church all night long. Hundreds, hundreds of spent rounds found outside. The next morning, the students surrendered. They all went off to jail. But that was the first real, holy cow, they have crossed the red line with the Catholic church. Since then, one bishop was pulled out at the Pope's request because he was receiving death threats. It was uh, Silvio Weiss. There were attacks on Catholic radio stations. Most recently this spring, they shuttered seven of them. And the picture that you saw in reference was the most recent bold-faced attack. And what it indicates is that Danny Ortega doesn't care what you, me, the Pope, or Joe Biden thinks about his repression. He knows that the United States is not going to invade. Most of his family and friends and associates have already been sanctioned by the United States, and they have figured out through offshore accounts and shadowy accounting, et cetera, how to continue to survive, if not thrive, 
Okay, they can't go to Disneyland and get a U.S. visa. They don't really care. So they figured out how to hunker down so far. And much like the North Korean leader, with a little less flamboyance and, you know, I don't know, but not, not the haircut that he has, they have decided, I believe, that, you know what, we're riding this one right into the sunset. And I firmly believe that he intends, he and his wife intend to install a family dynasty there. And it's going to take an awful lot of concerted hemispheric and international pressure to dislodge. Let me just double click on this. What are our options in Nicaragua? Given what you've just described, what are our options and what are some of the easy, immediate options and what are some of the longer term options to deal with this? Because it's certainly offensive. We may start seeing, I think, increasing numbers of migrants from Nicaragua as a result of sort of all the problems there. And I think you're starting to see a trickle. Going back to the boom in the night or a problem, I think we also pay attention if we start having people show up at our border from country X, that's sort of in the boom of the night department. So what can we do? What are our options in Nicaragua? Yeah, they are limited. They are absolutely limited, as they are in Venezuela. When you have a dictator who has made the conscious decision that he will kill, maim, imprison his own people, that's an individual that's pretty far gone. And so negotiations are a stretch, not that they're impossible, but they're really, really difficult because you have to find leverage for them. And that would be some kind of soft landing. You mentioned exile. That has something that has been done in the past. Uh, I'm thinking of the Duvalier family in Haiti. I'm thinking of General Avril from Haiti. You know, Panama, where I served, used to be a great repository for a lot of these, you know, international bad guys. Dalla Bucaram from Ecuador. But that doesn't happen anymore, and it doesn't happen for a simple reason, and quite frankly, I believe for a good reason, and that is the concept of universal jurisdiction. The idea that you can commit human rights abuses, sack a country wholesale, and then go off and live off those proceeds, it's much, much harder. So what can we do? All right, the first, the overarching thing we can do, and we are doing it, but I argue that we should be turning up the rheostat, is go after their money. Dictators only survive if they have enough money to support them. And however they get that money, usually it's through things like narcotics trafficking, illegal mining. Sometimes they have natural resources. That's the case in a lot of African countries. It certainly was the case in Venezuela. It's greatly diminished now. Then you get to a place like Cuba and, you know, where do they get their money from? Well, they get their money, tourism receipts. They no longer have the Soviet Union to count on. None of these countries can get credit on international credit markets because they're all disastrous risks. But they do figure out a way to continue to put money in their pockets. So I argue go after their money. So what can we do? The first thing we can do I believe, is we have two pieces of legislation in the United States specifically focused on Nicaragua, both championed by Senator Bob Menendez, and who I have to say is one of the very few individuals in a foreign policy role as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee who, you know, thinks about Nicaragua on a regular basis. And, and I applaud him and his staff for that. So we have these two pieces of legislation that allow the United States to sanction Nicaraguans and to provide some preferential treatment for Nicaraguans fleeing the repression. Implement those fully. And one way you could do it, and this would be symbolic only, I recognize that, but is sanction Daniel Ortega as an individual. 
put OFAC, that's Office of Foreign Asset uh, Control, sanctions on him. What that would do immediately is if the United States, Treasury, intelligence communities, State Department are able to trace any of his resources in the United States, whether that's property, whether it's bank accounts, whether it's bank accounts under other people's names, we have the right under our law to freeze that. It's probably not going to, you know, take the caviar uh, off his table, but it is a symbolic and important sanction that I think would would bolster the spirit of Nicaraguan patriots and the the many suffering Nicaraguan citizens who see him, you know, literally living la vida loca and wondering why haven't the gringos sanctioned him? We've sanctioned a whole bunch of other folks. We should do him. Second thing we need to do, we need to get to the international community and do a lot of consciousness raising. Japan and Korea still offer concessional loans to Nicaragua. I cannot for the life of me tell you why, but Japan and South Korea are great allies of ours. We need to have a very serious conversation and say, do you realize what you're supporting, who you're supporting, and shut off that flow? The third thing I would do, there is a development bank or regional development bank called Cabe. Regional Development Bank of Central America, that would be the translation. That is a bank that raises money on international capital markets to include the United States. And 26% of its portfolio is spent in Nicaragua. Nicaragua is the second poorest country in Latin America. It has very, very little productive infrastructure. It was horribly hit by COVID. And yet this bank is spending roughly a quarter of its portfolio. And where's that money going? Investigate. Find out where it's going. Is it building roads? Is it building clinics? Is it putting up schools for kids? I don't think so. A lot of that money is going into the Ortega Family Fund. And we should be investigating it, along with the bank's president, an individual Honduran individual named Dante Mossi, who has a very friendly and cozy relationship with Daniel Ortega and Rosario, President, Vice President of Nicaragua. The fourth thing is I would put in the further off category, and it is more difficult, but I think it bears watching, and that is see about expelling them from CAFTA. CAFTA is the regional multi-partite trade agreement that we have and in which Nicaragua participates, as I said, in terms of trade with the United States. It's minuscule. It's a tiny rounding error in terms of a lifeline for Nicaragua, it's very important. The thing you have to balance there is that when you put sanctions on a country, vice an individual, you will hurt an awful lot of folks. But as one Nicaraguan recently told me, John, over 170,000 Nicaraguans have left home and marched north to get into the United States to work illegally in your fast food industries, in your you know, meatpacking industries, wherever they can get anything because life is so terrible here. How much more are you going to hurt? So it's a question that bears examination at the very least. Uh, so those are some of the things that I would do. Ambassador, somebody said one time about Venezuela, there's sort of three solutions to Venezuela. There's magic, there's diplomacy, and there's a military solution. There's no way we're, there's any kind of military solution to Nicaragua. Is that right? There really is not. Look, we, we invaded and occupied Nicaragua in the first part of the uh, 20th century. I think we've just seen how long-term occupations go in Iraq and Afghanistan is our most recent experience. Uh, the world is, is very different than the colonial era and, or American expansionism under Teddy Roosevelt. 
I don't think that that is a practical application of the U.S. instrument of national power, which is the military service. I don't think the Nicaraguans, there are plenty of Nicaraguans would love to see, you know, a SWAT team come in and take Danny Ortega out. And I'm sure he probably still in, you know, his feverish nightmares thinks about it. But that's not going to happen. And I would argue it shouldn't happen. Uh, what should happen is that Ortega uh, should step down and see if he can somehow figure out how he's going to make his peace with the Nicaraguan people. He could probably, if he personally sought his own exile, he could probably get some regime either in the region. It would have to be in the region. He's not going to survive in Tehran or in you know, Moscow. But let's not forget this. And we haven't talked about this yet, but the security aspect, while I do not argue that there should be a military solution, I'd hope for magic, but I don't think that's going to happen either. That had to be, by the way, it had to be Brownfield who said that. Well, I wouldn't argue for a military solution. I would say that a significant reason why we should, we collectively as a U.S. government, and I'm retired from it now, but also as an American citizen, should pay a lot more attention to Nicaragua is because as its options for friends have shrunk, and as folks are no longer sending it money, you know, for free, it has begun to reach out and deepen its relationships, in particular with Russia and Iran. Chinese, quite frankly, I think are too smart. They recognize Nicaragua as a basket case, and they don't really want to get too close to it. There was a couple of years ago the thought that they would build an interoceanic canal through it to compete with Panama. And that totally fell on its face and hasn't gone anywhere, nor will it. But they have reached out and they are deepening their relationship with Vladimir Putin. They are deepening their relationship with Iran. And that should be of great concern and is of great concern, I believe, to DOD, CIA, State Department and the White House. Something else I should mention, and this goes back to the, my, my injunction to go after the money, investigate the money. There's a rumor circulating. In Nicaragua. That's all I can say it is. I don't have any greater substantiation, but I will continue to look. And for people who may listen to this podcast who may know Nicaragua well and care, I would encourage them to look. The daughter in law of Daniel Ortega and Rosario Murillo, by the name of Yadira Leeds, she was the, the wife of his son Rafael, is missing from Managua. Now, again, is rumor circuit, but it's informed rumor circuit, the people that I talked to. She's not in Nicaragua. She attempted to leave. She and her husband split. They had a very acrimonious fallout. Why is Yadida Leeds important? She's important because she's a very bright woman who was on the boards of a half a dozen family companies. That includes media companies. It includes the oil companies. It includes a lot of things. She was a financial fiduciary, if you will, for this family. She's now on the outs with this family. Nicaraguans don't know where she is, but she's not in Nicaragua anymore. That should keep Danny and Rosario awake at night. I will leave it at that. Ambassador, this was amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining me today. On Building the Future with Dan Rundy, Ambassador John Feely, thank you so much. Real pleasure. You take care, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. 
You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 